For those just joining us, we're speaking with Beverly Thompson. We're talking about uh, jail solidarity. She is the author of a very unique study examining jail solidarity, which is a form of, uh, it, w- w- is it correct to call it a form of civil disobedience post-arrest? Is that? Yeah. Okay. And uh, tell us, uh, well, let's begin by how did you get interested in this uh this aspect of dissent and uh, how did you choose this as a method uh, well how did you choose this as a topic of uh, academic inquiry what's your background well I'm an activist and I've always been involved in certain uh, organizations within whichever city I've lived in Seattle San Diego later New York so basically um, this was a time in my life I had just received my master's in women's studies and I was looking for a job in a social justice type of nonprofit. And so uh, this was a few months right before the WTO, and everyone was planning to attend that protest, and there was a lot of activity and excitement about that protest for months and months before the WTO happened. And so I'd heard a lot about this event, and I knew all these different kinds of organizations were going, and so I definitely planted and to be involved in that, and I was there at the WTO, and it was just uh, a very exciting uh, protest, uh, much larger than anything I'd been involved in previously. And I knew a lot of people there, and um, I witnessed uh, all the um, the large arrests, and I was outside of the jail a little bit after that event, but it was just very interesting to see this tactic used. I'd never heard of it before. I'd never seen it before, so I was asking all the activists, where did this tactic come from? What is the history of this tactic? And then I continued to participate in the subsequent protests and continued to see it grow and then participated in it myself in all aspects. And so by the time I entered my PhD program, I definitely knew this was something I wanted to focus on. So what is the history of jail solidarity? What did you learn about that? Well, within the United States, uh, it's used by groups that use mass protests as, as their means. And so the first one was the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies, around the early 1900s. And this was a movement of, um, you know, the IWW is a, a, a labor organization that's made up of all kinds of um, workers. And so they would often have these mass demonstrations within cities called um, free speech demonstrations. And so um, they would have people up on soapboxes preaching about labor rights and labor issues, and those speakers would be arrested. And so in order to continue to have speakers spreading their message, when one person was arrested, they'd put up another person, and that person was arrested until the jails were full. And then um, they would practice these solidarity tactics within the jail and refuse to leave until um, everyone was released together. And so they used that tactic a lot, but they also, towards the end especially, um, were quite repressed. And so the civil rights movement also um, used this tactic with their famous jail in, uh, filling the jails with um, activists. And then after that, it was the anti-nuclear protests during the early uh, 1980s. And so then some of the people that were involved in those movements in particular uh, the same people were involved with this global justice movement in the 1999, 
And so they were able to really remember this tactic, remember how successful it was, and, um, and train it to younger activists and uh, other activists and, and make it uh, come about. It seems that, you know, we know that one of the, uh, the tactics that law enforcement try to do is uh, engage in a strategy of divide and conquer, uh, not only with, with activists. You know, one could watch uh, Law & Order or any of these law shows, and if there are two suspects, they always interrogate them in separate rooms and, you know, try to uh, engage in the kind of prisoner's dilemma where they pit one person against another. Um, so jail solidarity, then, is one way to, uh, to make sure that, that that divide and conquer doesn't happen. And uh, it, it insulates or tries to protect maybe the, the political organizer or the person who's the most prominent in an activism group. Is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, exactly. Okay. How did, uh, how did you conduct uh, your research? I mean, how did you decide, okay, this is the topic that you want to focus on for a dissertation? And... Uh, for those listeners out there, you know, we're at the, broadcasting from the campus of University of California, Irvine. It's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, dissertation topic. How were you able to make it fly with your committee? Well, I go to the New School for Social Research, so it's a pretty um, liberal university in general right there in New York City. And, um, and this is definitely something central to the university. My university is really founded on these uh, anti-war policies. It's a, a school that came about after World War II where they're really concerned about these issues of fascism and how they arise and how we can fight against it. So it wasn't uh, a conservative university, and I didn't really have to convince them uh, that this was an acceptable topic. I also uh, worked with my primary professor, Terry Williams, and he's definitely someone who does uh, ethnography at the edge. He definitely researches a lot of um, groups like uh, drug addicts, crack houses in New York City, people that live under the tunnels in New York City. So he does a lot of these extreme ethnography research projects and also teaches classes like that. So that fit within uh, that realm also of studying these kind of high-risk direct action social movements so, um, so that wasn't really an issue. How did you... So take us through a jail solidarity. I want to remind listeners, we're talking about jail solidarity. It's a strategy of uh, non-cooperation, I suppose we could say, is probably the, the best way of characterizing it. Non-cooperation uh, with authorities post-arrest. Post so how does it begin? You, uh, activists are arrested at a protest either for doing nonviolent uh, resistance or, as could be the case with uh, these mass protests, they just get caught up in the, uh, in the dragnet. Um, and w is the decision made during uh, affinity group training prior to a demonstration, or can the decision be you know, something that people decide while they're all sitting there on the bus going to uh, a detention center, or is it something that they decide upon while they're sitting in the, in the jail cell? What have you learned? Well, it's both of those situations. Um, people, there's a lot of training workshops that go on before any mass protest events. For weeks and weeks beforehand, there's workshops on uh, knowing your rights, on civil disobedience, the history, uh, global, it, globalization issues, 
uh, lots and lots of training. So a lot of people are really pre-trained in these tactics before the protest happens. But also then you have people that uh, just show up and don't go to trainings and people that are swept up and never intended to be arrested or that weren't even part of the protest at all but might have been on the sidewalk watching. So there's definitely that large division of protesters that have really planned to come to this event and uh, perhaps participate in some civil disobedience on the streets, risking arrest, and those that uh, didn't uh, plan on getting arrested but might have become impassioned in the moment because they witnessed some police brutality on the streets or else they're on the jail bus. And that's definitely a time, that's the first uh, time when all these people have come together as a group for whoever was arrested. Now they become this group that's in the, um, a high-risk uh, situation together. So that's a very solidarity-creating moment. And so on the jail bus is when everyone starts talking about uh, what is jail solidarity. They explain it to each other. They say who's going to participate, who's um, going to utilize solidarity tactics. And so once you see that this large number of people on the bus, you know, maybe 90% of people plan on participating in solidarity tactics, then I think that that really shows the less committed people that uh, this is a strong group that's going to work together. And since so many people are participating, they feel a lot safer. So then even those people that are a lot more concerned about the tactic might participate because they see such strong numbers. And so at people on this event, they're, they're in the bus a long time be, at these mass protests. When so many people have been arrested, there's a huge backlog at the jail. And people can be on the, on the bus for five to six hours. And I think it's really important to emphasize uh, that the, 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 the dual nature of that is that, first of all, you want to have a, a large number of activists because if only a handful engage in jail solidarity, they're easily singled out by, uh, by authorities. There's something uh, that I witnessed firsthand uh, at the RNC in New York where uh, I'm sure listeners are aware of uh, Pier 57, as we've, we've covered it here on the program so many times, you know, that detention center on, on the Hudson. And uh, at any given point, there were about 500 people being held at that, that old bus depot. And uh, when I was there, there were about three or four uh, teenage girls. I mean, this had to have been perhaps their first arrest or their first act of, of you know, pretty, pretty serious activism. And they decided to engage in jail solidarity. And everybody around them pleaded with them not to do it because they were going to get singled out. And sure enough, the four of them decided to engage in jail solidarity. And it was very easy for police to show up in, uh, in their riot gear and uh, engage in pain compliance and, and pepper spray with these four individuals. So uh, the strategy then, as you suggest, is to, um, to really have a large group so that the police can't engage in that kind of uh, singling out or divide and conquering. But then the other thing, of course, is the more people that engage in jail solidarity and refuse to cooperate with law enforcement, the harder it is for the justice system to process uh, activists. And it creates this, uh, this, this whole backlog, as you say, uh, within the courts, within the jails, and uh, it ties up resources. Is that fair enough? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you definitely need more than four people. You need this critical mass of numbers. The numbers is very important. Uh, but, yeah, part of the tactics 
the first one is um, when you don't give your name to when you're being processed in. And so if without your name, without all these personal identifying uh, information, they can't really process you out of jail or into jail. And so without giving your name, they, they can't release you. And so that's the shock to the police is that the worst uh, they can do to you to really disempower you is to arrest you. And so if you go into jail, usually, I mean, you want to get out of jail, you're, you're panicked and, and fleeing to get out. But instead of that typical reaction to say, well, I'm just going to stay here, I'm not going to leave, then that really is very shocking to the police and um, undermines their ability to really follow their normal procedures, which is to individualize people and to really uh, have them controlled. And so, as you said earlier, it, it's that element of surprise that I think is how you put it that is so uh, so crucial uh, that uh, people get arrested. And uh, as you say, usually the expectation is that people want to get in, get out, and uh, get back to their their lives and their families. And here, there could be uh, you know dozens or hundreds of people arrested, and uh, uh, they're willing to stay in jail, and it totally throws authorities off uh, off guard. Right. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Beverly Thompson. She's the author of The Global Justice Movement's Use of Jail Solidarity as Response to Police Repression and Arrest. It's an ethnographic study in uh, the academic journal Qualitative Inquiry. So step one then, uh, after the organizing, which could either take place, as you say, during extensive um, pre-event training or uh, during that extensive downtime when, uh, you know, talk about schools of crime, you know, when uh, we talk about jails and prisons as schools of crime, but often, uh, as you point out, these uh, makeshift detention centers or simply being placed on public transit buses and uh, and held for hours in uh, in transition to a detention center can be schools of activism then, because uh, I believe, you know, in Seattle at the WTO, while uh, people were waiting to be sent to Sandpoint, that was where uh, people often, you know, had first heard, I think you mentioned, uh, first hearing of jail solidarity in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really, and that's the first time that this group has come together as a group. And also it's the, the last time that they can really count on having time together, because after they get to the jail, they might be really separated, and it's hard to conduct some kind of plan or uh, information spreading when you're segregated into different cells. And so communication after the entry into jail is very problematic. So this is a very important time for people to train each other, explain what's going on, what the charges could be, what the benefits of uh, staying in solidarity are. Some individuals need to leave because of their own personal situation, and so Will, will they be covered under any deal that uh, comes about, or are they going to take a higher um, fine or charge because they leave as an individual? And, um, and just, you know, it's a very scary time for a lot of people, and there's a very big imbalance of knowledge that people have in the situation. So the, the time on the bus is very important to uh, tell each other uh, what to expect and what we're going to do. And just like you say, as far as dividing people, um, interrogating individuals separately to check out the discrepancies between their story, I mean, we all want to be on the same page as far as what we're doing, what we 
should and shouldn't say, uh, and so on. And so that's a very important time. And then once people are processed into jail, which is another point of resistance when people are getting their fingerprints uh, taken or filling out the information or refusing to fill out the information, then that's a point uh, of resistance where people might refuse to be fingerprinted. But it's also a one-on-one -on -one contact with the officers, and so that puts uh, the individual into another dangerous situation. For example, refusing to give your fingerprints is a very vulnerable position to put yourself in because they can break your finger. They can really do a lot of physical harm to you. And so, um, you know, people really need to assess their own level of risk-taking personally, and that depends on a lot of factors. But uh, that, those things should be really talked about and planned ahead and decided upon wisely instead of um, sometimes it's decided upon in a very emotional state or uh, it's just not a collective thing with um, everyone, you know, everyone can't participate in the same level on that. So it's just uh, those are times when it's very vulnerable as individuals. But then, you know, they get into their cells, and so now they're more separated. Uh, they've lost their possessions and their individuality, and they've even lost their names because they're refusing to give their names. So either they use a code name uh, well, they use a code name inside of the jail to communicate with each other. And then, you know, of course, they're given their police number. So then it's very hard to conduct um, meetings. And in order to continue the solidarity practice, there needs to be this constant uh, communication amongst all the people participating of what the strategy is, what they're going to do, what their demands are, what tactics they're going to use. So, um, so there's always that struggle of how to continue the conversation. And so it's just amazing some of the communication methods that arise where they can uh, call out their jail cell number and have these collective meetings amongst each other, their consensus meetings, where they're doing it uh, in separate cells down uh, this large corridor. So it's very interesting. Hmm. You know, it was so, uh, I was so excited when I came across your article because uh, I, as we talked you know, not on the air last week, uh, our, our research agendas kind of intersect nicely. Um, I am conducting a, or finishing up a similar study, and uh, I interviewed folks who had done jail solidarity, but that's just one little aspect of my work. And, uh, you know, you talked about um, everyone has a code name, and so I, I spoke to people who, who, when they're arrested, they, they say their name is Mother Earth or uh, every child, or outraged citizen, or uh, future generation, or things of that nature. Um, there's one story that I, I found of uh, uh, 50 activists who were arrested outside the uh, Rampart Division mm -hmm. of the LAPD during that whole uh, corruption. Yeah, I was there too. Well, there you go. He might have been <laughs> part of this action, but uh, there, were, uh, there were about 50 people arrested, and they had decided uh, ahead of time uh, to engage in jail solidarity. And uh, they said they weren't going to give their names, they weren't going to give any information until they got an agreement ahead of time that all 50 people would get the same consequence, uh, the same case disposition, and that the, the punishment would be decided right then and there because uh, activists had come from, from kind of far away and they didn't want to have to keep driving back to L.A. to, uh, to go to court. Uh, and it worked, and all 50 activists got the same disposition, and it was decided then and there. Um, 
So even with 50 people, it can work if the size of the protest uh, outweighs the capacity of the system to deal with those protesters. I mean, I guess that's really the, the power balance that needs to be figured out. Yeah, that was a very interesting situation, too, because there were so few people, and that jail holds over 10,000 people. So it's pretty amazing to think uh, so few people could really uh, win in that situation. And, of course, then to divide that number in half, I mean, you have about 20 or 25 women and, and the same amount of men, so the groups are even smaller. But... Um, but in other situations, in that L.A., there was only about 170 people arrested during those few days of protesting, which was a lot smaller than the other events. In Seattle, you have 600 people arrested. And the situation in, in Washington for the uh, April 2000 protests against the IMF World Bank, during the entire uh, few days of protest, there was about 1,300 people arrested, but only 150 had practiced uh, jail solidarity. And a lot of those people that had been arrested who didn't participate in the solidarity had either taken a plea bargain or um, posted a fine. And so after the jail solidarity was successful, after five days, uh, we got the deal to be extended to all 1,300 people who had been arrested. Even if they had um, taken some other deal previously, they could uh, take that back. Right. So, but that was dependent on the Washington, D.C. jail had a policy where they couldn't have uh, a certain amount of people. And if they went over that population, they were fined every day. And so by us being there, we were making them go over their um, limit of prisoners. And so we were able to really exert a lot of pressure within that particular situation. And but this, L.A., it's so much bigger, so we didn't have that power, but it was still successful. And that's key, and that's something that uh, I'm glad you brought up because it's really important for, uh, for people trying to understand jail solidarity to, to, to recognize is that one of its strengths is it's kind of ironic that one of the reasons jail solidarity can work so well is because our prisons, or, or I should say our jails, uh, our county jails are already filled beyond capacity. And so in, uh, in many uh, of the larger cities, there are uh, requirements that uh, the jails can't be filled beyond a certain limit or can't be filled beyond a certain capacity. And if they are, they could be fined by the county or by the state. And so one of the advantages of jail solidarity is to take advantage of the fact that our, uh, our local jails are already filled beyond capacity. So as you pointed out, in Washington, uh, D.C., or uh, also in, um, in New York City, uh, during the RNC, the, uh, judges had said that, uh, you know, if uh, the jails were filled beyond capacity for uh, more than you know 24 hours or 48 hours, then the city would be fined for each uh, for each inmate being held. And so that's really the point of leverage, it seems, with uh, a lot of these larger uh, demonstrations, is to take advantage of the fact that we've already got a bloated criminal justice system, and uh, and put that kind of pressure on them to uh, to agree to the demands of the uh, these large affinity groups. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting in New York, too, because, well, well you mentioned these, these four girls that wanted to participate in Solidarity, but Solidarity wasn't really a tactic used there in a large way. And so they did the opposite thing, though, which was very um, 
you know, important because there's about 1,700 people arrested at that event, and um, there was the uh, court order that you have to process everyone within 24 hours. And so just the sheer volume of people they had to process, it was just impossible. And so that became the leverage for the activists, which they could sue the city over, is that there was a policy where they had to process people within 24 hours. They didn't do that. Therefore, um, they could be sued on that. And so that was powerful. Well, take our listeners through your research methodology. Now that we have a, a general understanding of uh, what jail solidarity is, the importance of training in it, because it is, as you point out, I mean, it is a very, uh, it, it can be very high stake if uh, individuals don't know what they're doing. I really liked your discussion of you know simply getting fingerprinted because that's always uh, the mo- one of the most nerve-wracking, uh, nerve-wracking things. Just as a, a personal narrative, I was arrested over the summer uh, doing a sit-in at a local congresswoman's office. And, uh, you know, we're in conservative Orange County here. And when the uh, when we were fingerprinted, uh, w- well, first of all, we were a group of six. And, um, <coughs> pardon me, and uh, three men and three women. So immediately, as you pointed out, we were already separated, you know, males from females. And then each of us was taken separately to be fingerprinted. And the uh, officer fingerprinting me decided, you know, he's got my thumb and my pinky finger in his hand, and he starts to argue with me over uh, the war on terror and the war in Iraq. And (laughs) the guy could break my fingers right then and there. And uh, when he asked me what I did for a living, and I pointed out that I was an educator, you know, it was, uh, again, oh, the liberal professors and, uh, you know, all the David Horowitz kind of nonsense that uh, that we hear. So I, I was was rather scared at that moment. Yeah. So I'm glad that uh, that you really emphasize that. But OK, so uh, now that we understand the risks that are involved and the planning that's required and how it works, uh, how did you go about um getting your interviews? Were you interviewing people while you yourself were behind bars or were these interviews that were conducted after the fact? Uh, how did you go about doing it? A few. I had attended WTO and I had attended the April 20th protest and that was before I was in my PhD program. And um, at that same time, I was working at a labor union and I knew it was inevitable at some point that I would have to get arrested for that job, you know. And I knew that that would be one of those really uh, pre-orchestrated arrests where uh, we do some planned action that we've fully informed the police of and then go to jail for an hour and get booked in and get booked out. And so uh, I always joke, like, well, I wanted my first time to be special, you know. I wanted to get arrested in this mass demonstration with jail solidarity and um, this huge experience. And so I had even informed my boss, well, don't expect me into work next week. Um, I plan on being in jail in D.C. And so, uh, so that was the environment where it was, it was kind of begrudgingly acceptable to, to be like that working in the labor union. So I had already attended a few events. I'd already been arrested in, uh, in Washington, D.C. for the IMF World Bank protest. And so I was already starting to get really embedded in the activist uh, networking scene. And a lot of these high-risk uh, direct action participants are very embedded in a lot of activist social networks. That's how uh, a lot of the recruitment goes on and so on. And, and I was also very involved in the New York activist scene. And so, of course, um, you know, a lot of those people would go to D.C. and other places 
So I knew a lot of people. I'd already participated in jail solidarity as an arrestee. So I had, um, you know, the confidence of the people. They, they could really um, see that I was an activist. And so I would interview, first of all, people I've already been in jail with. Uh, every time that people had participated in jail solidarity right after the event, they create an email list to uh, stay networked together and um, communicate about any following court cases or anything like that. And so, um, so I could interview those people and then just use the snowballing method of interviewing people they knew and people they knew. And until I really got um, a lot of interviews, I interviewed about 50 people who had participated in all of these actions across the country. And so um, I was able to capture a lot of narratives. And I also worked with the law collectives that would do the legal defense for these uh, large actions. And so I interviewed all the people that worked on the law collectives. And I, I worked with them, so I knew them. And then I had access to all the other collective members across the country. So uh, that wasn't a problem. And I conducted phone interviews, and I was actually pretty surprised by how uh, trusting people were uh, uh, with me. I expected a lot of um, hesitancy or distrust of who I am. I could be a police officer trying to gain further information. Uh, so I was surprised that they were, they were pretty trusting. But it was um, an easy experience, uh, ability to follow those different social groups and talk to a lot of people. And at the same time, uh, you know, it's interesting because while we would expect uh, the interviewees or the participants in your study to be uh, hesitant to speak, we know that uh, civil disobedience is designed to be a public proclamation. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, we could understand a, a reticence to speak to someone who's asking all these questions and at the same time there's a, a desire to uh, to get the word out about these different tactics and strategies and and reasons for engaging in uh, this kind of nonviolent resistance to begin with right well for a lot of people well for almost everyone who participated in this this is a huge life-changing event and uh, it's just huge in these people's lives especially uh, then closer to the event so there was a lot of interest in sharing these stories and sharing their belief systems about these social issues that they feel so strongly about that they would take this kind of risk upon themselves. So what is next for you, Beverly? What, uh, what is your next line of research? Well, here in Miami, I got involved in some clinic defense uh, ongoing protests that are going on pretty close to my school. And so I started attending those events for six months or so and made a short documentary film about that and also uh, wrote about that topic. And so uh, that is an example of when local ongoing activism here in the city of Miami. Um, but I'm also working on other projects. Um, I just clicked on your website and didn't know that there was sound on it. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking that was me. Yeah, go, <laughs> but, go um, for it. I'm also interested in just some, uh, like I'm in women's studies, so I'm, I'm looking at some issues of um, identity, and I'm looking in particular about uh, female tattoo artists and women who are heavily tattooed as kind of a gender-resistant statement. 
And uh, I wanted to let listeners know that was what I was trying to do, that they could find out more about you by uh, checking out your website. And let's see now if I get, no, we don't get any snake sounds on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who wanted to know what that, uh, that rattling kind of hissing sound was, uh, you also have a website, which is uh, Snake Girl. Dot net. So uh, in the minute or so we have left, tell our listeners a bit about your website and about the different video and uh, art that they could find on your website. Yeah, well, this is uh, my personal website. And so I've also started to really incorporate a lot of video into my uh, ethnographic work and also my activism. So these are some short video clips about activism I've been involved in. There's the one uh, uh, clip on the clinic defense stuff. There's one on um, the farm workers. We did. We had an event here at my school with the uh, Coalition of Immokalee Workers who came to campus. And so um, just some videos about uh, other subcultural events like um, roller derby and so on. And uh, the website is uh, snakegirl.net. You also uh, are an artist. Uh, how do you, uh, what are the different images of your art? Well, I have, uh, right now, since I'm working on this Tattoo Women's Project, I have a lot of, um, I've been working on some paintings of these tattoo women, and um, I've also painted some protest pictures. I like to paint as a way to really um, think about whatever kind of research project I'm working on in the moment. Uh, I don't like to only write, but I like to kind of visualize whatever uh, topic I've immersed myself in, in in various ways, and so I use video, I paint pictures, I write, and so on. So I like to be more multimedia in my research. The website is uh, snakegirl.net, and uh, the article is uh, The Global Justice Movement's Use of Jail Solidarity as a Response to Police Repression and Arrest. It is uh, available in uh, the academic journal Qualitative Inquiry. So uh, for listeners out there, you might want to go to your local university or public library. Definitely check it out. It's definitely worth uh, reading about. And uh, Beverly, I want to thank you so much for uh, for joining us this morning. I was so excited to uh, be able to speak with you because I think uh, your work is fascinating, and I hope we could have you back soon. Yeah, I would love it. Thanks a lot. All right, and good luck to you. All right, thank you.